Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. Great to be with you to start off July, but... It wasn't a great end to the month of June on Wall Street. We begin with a look at the year to date as investors gear up for the second half. And it's been the worst start for the Dow since 1962. As for the broader S&P 500, it racked up its biggest first half decline since 1970. Right now, U.S. futures are pointing to another lower start as we get into the new month, and investors continue to worry about the same issues, rising prices, recession fears, and Russia's war in Ukraine. Looking around the world, European markets are mixed. As new data show Eurozone inflation climbed to a record high of 8.6 percent in June, driven by soaring prices for energy and food. Over in Asia, Hong Kong markets closed today as the city marked 25 years since the handover from Britain to China. Markets in Japan and mainland China ended the day lower. All right, let's get to the stories making headlines today. It may be a new month and a new quarter, but investors around the world are still dealing with the same problems. Markets hoping for a fresh start as we kick off July after a dismal second quarter. Will we see fireworks ahead of Independence Day? Who better to answer that? This Rahel Solomon, um, she's uh, joining me now. Um, you look all happy. You wouldn't think what, about what we just went through in the first half of the year. You know, if I was, if I had a scorecard, the losses would be piling up. I'm curious what the expectations are for the second half of the year. Yeah, hard to say if investors these days are feeling as happy. Trying to bring some sunshine on a Friday, Allison. Good to be with you. Yeah, it was such a tough first half of the year. Hard to predict for sure what to expect on the back half. But uh, a glimmer of hope is you, you mentioned 1970 at the beginning of the show. Well, the last time stocks were as hard hit, the S&P lost 21 percent the first half of 1970. But the second half actually rebounded 27 percent. So that might make investors a bit happy. Hard to say for sure what we will see this year, because as you have already mentioned, there are so many headwinds for the markets, uh, both here and abroad in terms of inflation. That, of course, uh, is the main issue. The Fed trying to get a handle on inflation and what it will have to do in terms of raising interest rates and curbing demand here in the U.S. Uh, Also, the war in Ukraine, as it continues to drag on its outsized impact on commodities like food prices, uh, energy prices. So there are still so many overhangs. And perhaps most importantly, Allison, there are no catalysts for growth right now. It's hard to see when we will get some good news. So there's so much uncertainty and lots of bad news that investors have been reacting to. You know, you talk about catalysts, you know, earnings season coming up. What do you think would be the next catalyst for investors to watch that could kind of change the direction that we're seeing Wall Street in at this point where this direction would be positive and it would actually stick? Well, I think earnings season this time around is going to be very important because, of course, uh, up until this point, we have heard that the consumer here in the U.S. has been very strong. We got some research out of Bank of America this month suggesting the same 
if we start to hear about a, a real pullback from consumers or if companies start to warn uh, about real, uh, a real change in consumer behavior, that would raise some alarms. We're going to hear from the banks first. As you know, we always hear from the banks first in earnings season. Uh, we're we're going to want to hear from some of the retail banks in terms of uh, checking accounts, savings accounts. How are consumers doing? Do they still are they still flush with cash as they have been these last few years? Or are they are they starting to draw down because of inflation that's at 40 year highs? So I'm going to be watching very closely the banks and, of course, the retailers to see uh, how are consumers doing in terms of their financial health and are they still spending? Okay, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. As crypto's price crash drags on, the European Union has agreed to some groundbreaking rules to regulate crypto assets. The man who led the talk said regulation would bring order to the Wild West by setting clear rules for a harmonized market. Let's bring in Anna Stewart on the latest uh, on this. Great to see you, Anna. So walk us through what these rules are. And I'm curious if, if any of this will actually help prevent you know, the wild spring swings and the mega losses that we've seen in the crypto space. And we have seen some hefty losses, haven't we? This first year has not been good for cryptocurrency either. Looking at Bitcoin, I think it's just closed out its worst quarter in a decade. And I don't think this legislation is really going to address any kind of big investment trends here. And let me introduce you how rude of me, Alison. It has a name. It's called MICA, uh, which stands for, as an acronym, as all EU things are, Markets and Crypto Assets. Now, this legislation is, however, designed to perhaps prevent some of the wilder price swings that have earned it the Wild West sort of moniker, uh, perhaps preventing some of the crashes we've seen in the last year. It's designed to really try and protect the investor, to try and protect, protect the consumer and make crypto asset providers just that little bit more liable. Now, it's going to target wallets, exchanges and the issuers of coins. And there's a huge focus here, Alison, on the so-called stable coin trying to ensure that stable coins are actually covered in the event of mass withdrawals. Now, we'd have to look back very far to remember Terry USD and how that crash wiped tens of billions of dollars off uh, the market. So that was sort of a, a situation perhaps that this legislation could fix. Moreover, so-called stable coins will now be supervised. The EU wants it to be supervised by the European Banking Authority, the EBA, and all other crypto asset service providers uh, will also need to operate within the EU and get authorization. Now, that could be from member states, uh, but if they're big enough, it will actually fall under the ESMA, so European Securities and Markets Authority. So we're seeing a lot of different bodies getting involved here. It's not just about finances either. They're interested in the environmental footprint uh, when it comes to crypto services, particularly if you think, of course, of um, crypto mining and just how energy intensive that is. They want all these providers to provide their environmental and carbon or climate footprint. Whether that then goes to trying to limit it or see them offset it to reach some sort of target, we're not sure. This could be the beginning of that. And finally, Alison, just a big interest here on money laundering and trying to ensure that cryptocurrency isn't used uh, for money laundering. So perhaps uh, more transparency, less anonymity and cracking down, I think, from uh, crypto coming from certain jurisdictions. Alison? Anna, thanks for going through all that. We'll see if uh, this is even more wide-reaching, if this goes you know, far beyond the EU. Thanks so much for your reporting. Hong Kong is marking 25 years since the handover from British to Chinese control, a day of ceremonies and speeches that kicked off with a flag-raising event. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in the city to mark the occasion. He praised the city's response to COVID, defended the controversial national security law, and talked about the importance of Beijing's policy of one country, two systems. To those who support one country, two systems, support 
the prosperity and stability of Hong Kong, whether you're from Hong Kong or from overseas, thank you. For more, let's bring in Selena Wang. She joins us live now from Beijing. Selena, great to see you. You know, in his inaugural speech, Hong Kong's new leader, John Lee, echoed what she said. I'm curious what some of the top priorities that Lee has lined up as he begins his new position. Well, Allison, in answering this question, it's important to understand the context of who John Lee is as a person. He is known as a Beijing loyalist, a hardline enforcer. He's a former police officer who led the crackdown on the 2019 anti-government protesters. And he's also the face of this sweeping national security law that critics say has crippled civil society, has silenced outspoken media, and has crushed the opposition movement in Hong Kong. So the fact that he has ascended to become the leader of Hong Hong Kong just speaks volumes about the direction of the city. And of course, one of his top priorities is going to be stability, security, bringing Hong Kong closer to the mainland economically, culturally, socially. The economy is also going to be a top priority, not just the integration piece with the mainland, but also Hong Kong, just as the economy here has been battered by years of the pandemic and the harsh COVID restrictions. So he needs to decide how to balance those COVID restrictions with the economy. He also has the tough task of dealing with the sky-high, notoriously expensive property prices in Hong Kong that has left the property market out of reach for many residents. On top of that, he's also got to deal with how to deal and explain with a lot of the opposition among the people in Hong Kong. Now, for many critics, they see Hong Kong as just a shell of its once former vibrant self. But for John Lee, for pro-Beijing supporters and for Xi Jinping, they see this as the rebirth of Hong Kong, a new era of stability after an era of chaos. Take a listen here to what Xi Jinping said on his July 1st speech. After going through a period of turbulence, we all deeply feel that Hong Kong cannot afford to be destabilized, and Hong Kong's development cannot be further delayed. We must eliminate all interference and focus on our development. All right, I am not hearing the speech. Go ahead, Selena. Okay, we're obviously having some technical difficulties. That was Selena Wang, though, reporting for us from Beijing. Let's turn now to the war in Ukraine and a deadly attack near the country's biggest seaport. Officials say at least 20 people were killed and dozens wounded when Russian missiles slammed into a residential building and a recreation center in the Odessa region. CNN Salma Abdelaziz joins us live now from Kyiv. You know, this attack on Odessa was horrific. What more are you learning? Absolutely. An an appalling overnight strike. Three areas hit by three different missiles, of course. The first, a residential building in Odessa, a nine-story apartment block where 150 people were believed to be living. Uh, hit by a missile. 16 people there killed. There's still rescue operations ongoing, but officials do not believe they'll find anyone alive under that rubble. The second missile hitting a, a, res- a recreation center. Essentially, this is kind of a holiday area. Four killed there, among them a child, according to officials. And the third missile 
landing in an empty area. But what we've seen here in recent days is dozens of these missiles being fired across Ukrainian towns and cities. Yes, you have that battle brewing in the east, particularly in the Donbass, a, a fight in which Ukraine is absolutely on the back foot, ceding territory. But there seems to be this second, almost simultaneous war, a psychological war with these missiles raining down across Ukraine. And Russia claims it's hitting military infrastructure, military targets, that it's trying to destroy Western weapons. But we've seen that these are often landing in civilian areas, a mall in Kremenchuk, an apartment block here in Kyiv, this apartment block in Odessa, a kindergarten. Uh, so these are really horrifying, appalling attack attacks on innocence. And they leave Ukrainians with this sense that there is nowhere safe in the country. But there's something more to read about this here as well. The type of missiles being used here are KH-22s. That, that's what was used on the mall. That's what was being used in Odessa. They're fired by strategic bombers over the Black Sea. What you need to know why I'm mentioning all of this is that these are usually missiles used to take out warships. They carry a thousand kilogram warhead and they're fired from outside Ukrainian territory. So analysts are reading between the lines. Why would Russia use these types of weapons? on these civilian infrastructures. It may be because they're running out of the right types of precision weapons, but they also don't have control of the sky, so they're having to do this from a distance. That's why that victory of Snake Island is really key, really important here, Allison, because it means that Russian forces are losing one more outpost, outpost that they could have potentially used to harm civilians. Salma Abdelaziz reporting live from Kyiv. Thanks very much. A momentous NATO summit wrapping up Thursday in Madrid. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg telling CNN's Christian Amanpour this week represented a victory for the alliance. It is a victory for NATO that uh, we once again have demonstrated our unity and our ability to uh, change, adapt when the world is changing. Now we live in a more dangerous world, and therefore we need a stronger and more, uh, even more united uh, NATO, and that's exactly what this summit has uh, delivered. Do you believe, because, you know, up until now it's been a threat uh, and a promise that if one square inch of NATO territory was, was challenged by Putin or anybody else, that there would be a swift reaction? Do you believe that NATO countries are much safer now than they were before this summit? They are safer in a more dangerous world um, because uh, we live in a world where we see brutal use of force uh, against uh, uh, a close uh, neighbor of NATO, uh, a close uh, partner of NATO, uh, Ukraine. And that's the reason why we have significantly stepped up and further will step up our presence in the eastern part of the alliance to remove any room for miscalculation or misunderstanding in Moscow about our readiness to protect and defend all allies. Uh, this is deterrence, and the purpose of deterrence is to prevent conflict, and that's exactly what NATO has done uh, for more than 70 years, prevent uh, conflict and preserve peace. These are the stories making headlines around the world. U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner's first trial hearing has just ended near Moscow. Authorities there arrested the two-time Olympic gold medalist at an airport a week before Russia invaded Ukraine. They say she had cannabis oil in her luggage. She's facing up to 10 years in prison. CNN's Fred Plekin is live for us in Moscow. Fred, good to see you. I'm curious how the first day here went in this trial hearing, but I'm especially curious if Griner is even able to get a fair trial. Hmm. 
Well, certainly uh, the uh, Kremlin uh, this morning on a conference call was asked about that, about whether or not this trial is in any way political. They claimed that it was not political and also said that they wouldn't comment on this trial because they say that it is a judicial matter. Now, one of the things that we have to point out is we're standing outside the courtroom and we're actually not allowed inside the courtroom. There was one media representative who was there, but there were representatives of the U.S. Embassy in the form of the Chargé d'Affaires who came and who observed this trial and obviously also wanted to be by Brittany Griner's side as she faced this trial. The way this trial went on, uh, or the first day went on, Allison, is that Brittany Griner was let in, the charges were read, the prosecutor made a statement, and then there were two witnesses that were heard from today. So it didn't last long at all. I said about two, maybe two and a half hours that, was she's, that she was in the courtroom. Afterwards, the chargé d'affaires of the U.S. Embassy here in Moscow came out, gave a statement. I want to listen to some of that. The U.S. Embassy, the American government, cares very deeply about this case uh, and about Ms. Greiner's welfare, as do millions of Americans, uh, as well as we care about the welfare of all U.S. citizens in prison overseas. I did have the opportunity to speak with Ms. Greiner in the courtroom. She is doing as well as can be expected in these difficult circumstances. And she asked me to convey that she is in good spirits and is keeping up the faith. So, Brittany Greiner, as you hear there, uh, in good spirits, according to the Chargé d'Affaires of the U.S. Embassy here in Moscow, we did find out a little bit more about what this trial is all about, uh, though, Allison. The prosecution apparently saying that two cartridges, apparently for vaping, were found uh, in Brittany Greiner's luggage and her hand luggage that one of them contained, as they put it, around a 0.25 uh, of a gram of, uh, of hash oil uh, in them, and the other one around point five of a gram of hash oil. So in total, we're talking about 0.7 of a gram. And again, the maximum sentence that could be doled out here in this court is up to 10 years in prison. So certainly some very difficult prospects there for Brittany Griner if, in if indeed this trial goes badly for her. Of course, one of the things that we do have to say that in many cases, people are convicted here in Russia. I was able to speak to one of her lawyers afterwards, and he would not make a prediction about which way this trial might go, Allison. All right, CNN's Fred Plekin live for us in Moscow. Thanks very much. North Korea appears to be blaming its COVID outbreak on the South. It claims that the virus first spread when two residents touched unspecified objects near the southern border. And it suggests that the items were flown into the country on balloons, something that South Korean activists regularly use to send aid and leaflets. Seoul is denying that it is at fault. After the break, the latest market action after the worst first half for the Dow in more than 50 years. And later, on the road again, why recreational vehicles are booming despite soaring gas prices. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Let's get another look at U.S. markets this Friday morning. Futures in July looking like they, they will pick up where they left off in June, right in the red. All three of the major averages are pointing to a lower open as investors continue to deal with a number of unfriendly headwinds. David Balin joins me now. He is the chief investment officer at City Global Wealth. Great to have you with us today, David. No, it's my pleasure. Um, thank you for being here. 
So, you know, we continue to see this constant drumbeat of recession expectations. The drumbeat is growing louder. We're seeing it play out in the market with those red arrows. One of the questions here to start off with is, do you think that recession is priced, uh, is priced enough into the market? And if not, how much farther do you see the market falling? Well, in, in many ways, you know, a, uh, uh, an economic slowdown, a considerable slowdown is being priced into the market. And really, the only thing that hasn't been priced into the market right now is an earnings revision that I think is forthcoming as we see the second quarter earnings you know, come out. I think we're going to see that for you know, our consumer industry, their inventories are very large, that sales are going to be slowing, and that's going to have an impact there. I think business spending, on the other hand, is going to be relatively sustained for the second half of the year, and that's going to be fine. So what's priced into the market, in my mind, is a considerable slowdown. And it, it, it also could turn out, by the way, that we will have had two negative quarters, the first and the second with negative GDP. What makes people um, uncertain is actually the definition of recession. And in order to have a recession, we need to see a material economic slowdown across much of our economy. And we need to see negative employment, neither of which we've actually seen and we probably are not likely to see over the course of the next quarter or two. So I think that the markets have anticipated, you know, a recession, but what really hasn't happened is, you know, the, the, the data has not confirmed that there in fact is a recession and it may never in fact get to a, uh, uh, you know, get to that, meet that definition. So once we get through this earnings season, do you see uh, the market falling? I'm talking about the S&P 500, another 15%. Is that, is that what's on your radar? That is not what's on our radar. So our base case right now is that markets could fall, you know, another 5% or so from where they are, assuming that the Fed does not continue to uh, uh, aggressively hike rates beyond what they've already told us. The Fed, you know, the forward curve for rates right now indicates, right, that the Fed expects rates to go up, by the way, another 150 basis points. The market is digesting that. And that certainly is more than enough medicine to begin to bring down inflation at the end of this year and into next year. That The question is, will the Fed be patient? If the Fed is patient, then markets may go down a little bit more, stabilize, and then ultimately recover in the fourth quarter of next year. If the Fed goes unusually aggressively, they could cause a significant reduction in employment, which would cause a much deeper recession and market reaction. In this market environment, a lot of people, they want to keep their money on the sidelines. But could there be a different way to protect your money from inflation? Um, do you have a different strategy? That is the most important question of the day, so I'm thrilled that you answered it, uh, asked the question, and let me describe why. Right now, if you're sitting on cash, if you have a dollar's worth of cash, you're going to have 90 cents worth of value in 24 months. We know that because inflation, even if it comes down, is going to eat away at the value of your dollar. So the number one thing that you can do right now is to actually go out and buy bonds, buy municipal bonds, buy investment-grade bonds, but we're talking now about buying very high-quality bonds. Why is that? If today you can get a 4 or 5% yield on a good high-quality bond and you do that over the next two years, you'll actually offset whatever inflation we're going to uh, face over the course of that time. So by leaving cash in the bank, you're actually diminishing the value of your portfolio. And by buying bonds, you are going to actually protect your portfolio. And for those of you who are worried about the fact, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to buy bonds and they're going to go down in value, We've already had the worst decline in bond valuations in the last 40 years occur. That's behind us. 
So with the Fed doing what it's doing and with the economy likely to slow, we probably are near peak rates now. So if you do buy bonds, you're going to get the benefit of coupons and potentially some price appreciation. So we are telling every one of our clients right now that bonds are back and that's the very first thing they need to do with their money. Very quickly, since you're pushing your clients to bonds, what would be the signal to get back in stocks? Great. Um, another great question. Um, the, the answer really is that once we know we've hit peak rates and once the Fed has said, wait a minute, we've done a lot already and we shouldn't do any more. Once the Fed becomes concerned about the fact that their policy is very, very strong medicine and is having a profound effect, once they make that acknowledgement that they're going to potentially say that's enough, at that moment in time, we will know that six or nine months out, earnings and the economy will be recovering because the Fed will pause. That pause to me is the indication that we should be moving back into equities. And the last thing that I just want to say is that clients should not be trying to time the market here. Investors who try to time the market and determine when they get in and get out will miss the one or two days that really matter in the course of a year. So you keep your core portfolio where it is, move into bonds first, as I've discussed, and then rotate into equities, you know, whether it's two months or five months from now, and add more into the market. That's good investment advice. All right, David Balin, Chief Investment Officer at City Global Wealth. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and you're looking at the opening bell live at the New York Stock Exchange. Well, we are in the second half of the year. It is underway. The question now, will July be a repeat of June? So far, it looks like it could be. <laughs> We're seeing red arrows again. Uh, markets opening lower. Investors' plates are full before the 4th of July weekend, with soaring inflation and a Federal Reserve trying to stamp out the flames with aggressive rate hikes. Wall Street certainly hoping to see the tide turn in the third quarter. Big tech stocks like Tesla, Amazon and Microsoft have had a rough second quarter marred by their worst performance in years. Right now, all eyes are on Tesla as the electric car giant announces its second quarter deliveries. I'm joined now by Dan Ives. He's the managing director and analyst for the brokers Wedbush. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. So we are anxiously awaiting Tesla's delivery numbers. Of course, strong numbers will be good for the stock. Weak numbers won't. Uh, if the numbers come in weak, what does that say about the trend, do you think, that Tesla is on? <clears throat> well, this is really uh, the zero COVID issues in China took out about 70,000 vehicles for Tesla in the month of April and May. So you essentially had a shutdown. Street really wants to see X that number called 250, 255,000 vehicles. We get that along with the second half ramp. I think Tesla stock has really started to bottom here. And look, this is a barometer across the industry for what the supply chain industry looks like. We saw GM today. It's not just Tesla, it's broader, but we believe Tesla here is sort of overcorrected relative to what we're seeing from a demand picture, still stable. Okay, but we're seeing Tesla with a number of headwinds here, supply chain issues, uh, lockdowns in China, distracting uh, a distracting Musk Twitter deal, uh, Musk's return to office mandate in Fremont, California. That's even distracting. There aren't enough desks, not enough parking spots. The Wi-Fi apparently doesn't work. Uh, these are all reports, of course. And, and then, of course, 10 percent of layoffs happening at Tesla. How is this company doing? 
Look, I, I think everything you're talking about, there have been a lot of black eyes situations from Musk. I think the Twitter situation has been a circus show. The way he's handled things, I think, with the employees has been very frustrating. And it just added to the agita and the overall black cloud over the stock. And I think you got to separate the demand story for Tesla, which continues to be firm and production that's starting to ramp up in China. But no doubt, I and mean, I think some of the blooms come off the rose from Musk in terms of how he's dealt with things over the last four to five months. And now it's a prove me situation. It all starts with this weekend with deliveries. This is the drum roll and the market will be watching. It's the drum roll. Interestingly enough, we haven't heard from Musk on Twitter. Apparently it's been nine days. What, what do you think is going on with Elon Musk? Well, I think, well, first off, focused on getting deliveries into customers' hands. I mean, that's been a logistical nightmare. But also our view is that the Twitter deal, that's a renegotiation that we believe is happening. And the stock's telling you that as well. We think, you know, the chances of 54-20 happening, I think that's sort of out the window in, in our opinion. That's what the street's telling you. And right now, it's do you see a renegotiation because of the bot fake account issues, 42 to $45 a share, or... Does Musk then decide to walk, pay the billion, and then ultimately fight Twitter board and court? And that's why this continues to be a twilight zone situation, not just from Musk and Tesla investors, but of course, Twitter investors as well as employees. You know, if we look at the broader tech sector, uh, you know, of course, the Nasdaq down about 30 percent year to date. When do you think these higher uh, Fed interest rates, the interest rates, you know, from the Fed are going to be priced into to the tech sector? Is there nowhere to go for tech but up or is there more downside potential? And if if so, then how much? And then another question to pile on here. Do you think stocks like Amazon, Tesla, Meta, Alphabet, will they ever really recover? Look, great questions. I think there's a bifurcation in tech. uh, Have and I have not. I think enterprise, software, cybersecurity, stalwarts like Apple, Amazon, Uh, And of course, names like Microsoft. I think those are stocks, in our opinion here, that I think they've started to see the bottom put in. I think overcorrected. I think stress test numbers could come down another 5%, 7%. But I think street, I think 2Q will ultimately actually be a positive catalyst for some of those names. Look, Meta clearly has headwinds on the horizon because of... You know, what we're seeing in terms of their business model, you saw the leaked memo being uh, speaking to that. I think ad tax is going to be soft, and I think chip issues is going to continue to be there. But my view is that tech stocks after 2Q start to rip higher. A lot's baked in here, and we view this more as a positive catalyst into the second half, unless there's some black swan event, which is why that's how we're navigating our investors to go through this Category 5 storm. I want to talk about Meta. Um, I know Mark Zuckerberg, through reports, he had an all-hands meeting yesterday telling Meta staff he's going to be turning up the heat on performance goals. That's as he says this may be one of the worst downturns that he's seen in recent history. And, of course, then we have Meta pausing hiring because of slowing revenue growth. What kind of future do you see here for Meta? I think it's going to be choppy because they could change their name. But it doesn't change. It's a social media platform. Advertising right now because of the privacy issues with Apple, that's been a significant gut punch to the business model. I think Cheryl going stage left, I think that ultimately takes the co-pilot out. And that was really a credibility for the street. And this is going to be some dark days ahead for Meta. I, I think not just this quarter, but the next few. Stocks obviously corrected significantly. But I think you can still see some more numbers cut. And I think it just shows that 
you know, really Apple was able to do what you were not able to see in the Beltway or Brussels really hurt the business model because of the iOS issues and the privacy. And that's something I think Zuckerberg and companies still don't have their arms around. And very quickly, when are these delivery numbers for Tesla coming out? Oh, I think it'll probably be this weekend while uh, many are barbecuing uh, some hamburgers and hot dogs. All right. Thanks very much, Dan Ives, Wedbush Managing Director and Analyst. Thanks so much for your perspective. Thanks for joining us. Coming up after the break, did you know Richard Quest loves a camper van vacation? Hitting the road with an RV in a post-pandemic trend for recreational vehicles. And I promise they're in a lot better shape than this one you see here. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick here in the United States. This July 4th weekend might just be the biggest day for air travel since before the pandemic. But bad weather and airline staffing issues are plaguing the industry with cancellations. And that could turn the next few days into a holiday from hell. Pete Montine reports from an airport in Virginia. At its round-the-clock command center in Virginia, the Federal Aviation Administration is preparing for what could be the biggest air travel weekend in years. The goal here, reroute flights around bad weather, overcrowded airspace, even space launches, in hopes of avoiding flight cancellations that are plaguing airlines. The latest federal data shows airlines have canceled 3.5% of all flights so far this year, a 42% increase over 2019 before the pandemic. They rebooked us for flight for tomorrow, and now we're just trying to figure out if we want to go out for a hotel or just stay here at the airport. I was really panicking. Yeah, patience. Yeah, look. Bring snacks. Yeah. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is warning airlines that they must perform. Last weekend alone, airlines canceled 2,200 flights nationwide. The weekend before, there were 3,200 cancellations. Secretary Buttigieg, uh, what can be done to end these massive flight cancellations that keep happening? Well, I was especially concerned after what we saw with the Memorial Day travel weekend. Look, we are counting on airlines to deliver for passengers and to be able to service the tickets that they sell. We have a good representation of the airlines industry here, right here at the command center on the floor with us. Here, FAA workers manage the flow of flights alongside representatives from airlines and industry groups. Airlines say they are only partly to blame for cancellations and have called on the FAA to staff up on air traffic controllers. The agency insists it is shifting controllers to delay and cancellation hotspots. We do not work in a vacuum, so we collaboratively make decisions and strategies together to help mitigate those impacts that are in the system. Airline after airline has announced it is preemptively canceling summer flights. Delta Airlines is letting all customers change their flights free of charge, saying operational challenges are expected this holiday weekend. This week, Delta pilots picketed at major hubs, saying they are overworked. So who is really to blame when it comes to these massive cancellations? Well, let's be very clear. The majority of delays and the majority of cancellations have not been caused by air traffic control staffing issues. Bottom line here is that the airlines that are selling these tickets need to have the crews and the staff to back up those sales. After passengers set a new pandemic era record, the TSA thinks this weekend will be big. The question for travelers is, will it 
be smooth. Is staffing an issue for TSA as well? Well, staffing is, is still a challenge, for I think, for everybody. But for us, it's not an issue that's going to impact wait times for travelers. Pete Muntean, CNN, Warrington, Virginia. So, if the thought of an airport brings you out in a cold sweat, how about a driving holiday? Recreational vehicles have come a long way since those cramped camper van vacations with mom and dad. Sales of modern RVs are up, and so are rentals, and that's despite spiraling gas prices here in the U.S. Bear in mind, the average RV only manages 10 miles to the gallon. RV Share is the world's first and largest peer-to-peer RV rental market, and it's offering an incentive to offset those high gas prices. John Gray is the CEO, and he joins us live. Great to have you on the show. I'm going to get to the incentive in just a moment, because I first want you to walk us through how RV Share works. So RV Share works exactly like a Verbo or an Airbnb, but for RVs. So if you're a group or a family who wants to go on an RV trip, you come to the site and you can find an RV from an owner who is listing their RV to turn it into a second source of income. So we're basically a matchmaker that brings people together who want to go on an RV trip with people who have an RV and want to turn it into a second source of income. Driver's license to operate one of these. So if you have a regular driver's license, you can operate an RV. Um, You know, we suggest that people, if they're going on their first RV trip, take a smaller RV just so they can get used to it and and kind of get used to driving a bigger car. And so that's something we always recommend. Okay. Talk us through maybe what the demographics are here. Who is actually renting these and how many people can actually fit into these giant um, road cruisers? (laughs) It really depends. There are camper vans that comfortably sleep two up to um, what are called fifth wheels that can sleep, you know, 12. So there's a big range. On average, it's usually somewhere in the four to five range. Um, You know, a Class C RV is one that, you know, kind of looks like a U-Haul truck with a a shell over the top. That's the, the kind of starter model that most people use. They sleep four or five people. And and that's how how most people get into the space. So I know with these, you know, sky high gas prices that so many of us are paying, uh, the first thing that comes to mind when they see RVs is, is this is a gas guzzler. In fact, one couple said that it, it, it took to fill up their 150 gallon diesel uh, tank, it, it cost close to $900 to fill from empty. So I'm curious how, how are, are your bookings being impacted because of gas prices and what's expected for July 4th as well? Yeah, so high fuel prices certainly aren't good for the RV industry, but you know, a, a $900 fill-up is certainly also not the, the norm. So on average, this year compared to last year, an average RV trip is about 325 miles. Um, you know, we believe that based on our data, the average RV gets about 15 miles to the gallon. So what that kind of results in is about $35 more compared to last year for fuel cost. So we do... You know, obviously fuel costs aren't fuel costs being high aren't good for us, but we certainly think it's far more manageable than going and buying a flight or something like that, which has also seen really um, big jumps in pricing as well. For 4th of July, we're seeing, you know, the business has grown about um, 40% this year. We expect it to continue through 4th of July. That's what we're seeing. And, you know, 4th of July and Labor Day are the biggest booking times in the RV rental industry year after year. That's the case this year. We're having a a huge 4th of July. 
And that gets to your incentive. I know that your company is giving away hundreds of thousands of gift cards to customers this year to compensate for increasing gas prices. Why are you doing this? Is this just a gimmick? Well, I, I think what we're trying to do is show first show that fuel prices are something that is manageable, and and two show that that RV Share is a great partner to you in renting an RV, and that we will help shoulder some of the burden of the additional cost as well. So that that's what we're looking to do, and the way it works is after you come and and stay on a, a trip with RV Share, you come back in, submit your your stay information, and then we'll send you a gift card. Um, based on the duration of your stay, but it's usually around $50. Let's talk about total wholesale RV shipments. Where are they and how has the pandemic changed your company? So two very different things. Um, in, in terms of wholesale RV shipments, they are still way up. I think the the number for May was plus three and a half percent off of what was a really big May last year or two. Um, ever since 2020, you know, in the, in the pandemic, RV sales have been just on fire. There's been a, a tremendous amount of, of RV sales. How the, that impacts our business is it means there's more supply of people who have an RV that they want to rent out. So that's generally speaking been really good for our business. Um, the pandemic kind of caused a lot of new people to come into RV travel, be it because they wanted more control over their mm-hmm. space or they just, you know, heard about it from a friend because so many people were going RVing when, you know, flying was less of an option um, during the, the early days of the pandemic. So, you know, our business grew tremendously during that time. We're, we're you know, we're more than 10 times the size we were five years ago at this point. What do you think would be a dream trip in an RV this holiday weekend? So my favorite is national parks uh, with with my family. We took one out to Big Bend a couple years ago. And, you know, the, the thing that's great about an RV trip is you're away from other people. You're out under the stars. You're you really control your own schedule and your own area. And you can just really build some experiences that are that are quite custom and um and are just, you know, tied around the group of people that you're with, which is really exciting. You know, RV trips have a, a really, really high satisfaction rate. 95% of our reviews are five stars. And that's partly because of the RVs, but it's partly because of people getting to spend out time outside with their family and the people they care about. And not having to wait at the airport after your flight has been canceled. <laughs> John Gray, CEO of RV Share, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Coming up, rivers are drying up as Italy is hit by a historic drought. We have a a special report. Welcome back. Italy is experiencing extreme weather conditions. The country is now in the middle of an historic drought with far-reaching impacts. CNN's Barbara Nadal reports. The River Po, which runs from the Alps to the Adriatic Sea, usually floods the land. But this year, it is far below normal and dropping fast. The river is the longest in the country, some 650 kilometers, and whole regions rely on it for hydropower and transport. 30% of Italy's food is produced on agricultural land that lies on either side of this river. And the area is suffering the worst drought in more than 70 years. The situation is the same across northern Italy, where some communities are already rationing water. Here on Simone Minelli's dairy farm, things are dire. As he watches the water level of the Po River drop, he worries about the future of this family farm, 
He's fearful he will have to cut the size of his herd. We'll see, we'll see. We are living day by day. It's logical when you don't have enough feed for the animals you have, you have to reduce. The cattle are even sprayed with water to keep them cool in the stifling heat. He tells us that water is fundamental to his operation, especially for the production of milk. And the milk from these cattle needs to meet a very high standard to be awarded the seal of authentic Parmigiano-Reggiano Parmesan cheese from this region. All this sand used to be underwater. Now Minelli and his friends have to walk far to reach their boat. Further up the river, this pump house supplies water to 150,000 people. Ada Giorgi has been the president of this local water consortium for the last 20 years. Her customers still have water, but she has never seen the Po in such distress. To keep the water pumping, they have to move the riverbed away from the intake. They have also had to add one meter of pipe to lower the pumps as the river drops. She blames climate change. We are missing rain, there is no snow, there are high temperatures. This creates the famous perfect storm and we are in an extreme crisis. And the forecast doesn't look good. For centuries, people who lived along this mighty river feared it would destroy their crops and homes. Now they fear it will disappear entirely. Barbie Lazzanedo, CNN, on the River Po, Italy. And finally, a Denver couple who are very big hockey fans, they got the surprise of their lives when a delivery van pulled up to their door and gave them the coveted NHL Stanley Cup. Really? But you guessed it. It was all a big mistake. Listen to this. The person opened the trunk and I saw the case. I recognize it because we watched the, fi uh, the, the final games. Everybody did. Uh, we saw them bringing up to the eyes. And like jokingly said, is that a Stanley Cup? And he says, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what are the chances they roll up to uh, huge fans? Anyway, it is tradition for every member of the winning Stanley Cup team to spend a day with the trophy. So the cup was supposed to go to the team's captain's house, who lives nearby. The address, get this, was off by one digit. Oops. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Feel free to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.